Who is that rat bag who needs a haircut? Um, my mum's prayers were answered, and for the first time in 15 years, uh, I had a haircut about a year ago. G'day, it's really nice to be back with you lot. I love you lot. I feel very comfortable. The dedication was beautiful. Like, it, it was exquisite. And um, I, since I was with you lot last, um, my gorgeous wife, Kathleen McKenna, who's a Dutch Australian, I know she sounds like she's from the Ardoin, like the rest of my family here, um, she's pregnant which is crazy exciting, we're having a boy. And midweek, I convinced her that in June, some of us are mates with uh, Johnny Clark and know that um, Johnny does this uh, border uh, walk in in June when it's a better time to walk across this gorgeous island than uh, in the rain at the moment, which I'm halfway through doing. And uh, Kat has said, if we can get the money together to come, we're all gonna come with a two-month-old boy And here's what I'd like to do. I would love for you lot to dedicate our little boy. Because I was so touched by today. I just thought it was one of the most beautiful. Do you you have any McKennas in the family? No McAteers? McLaren, yeah. Because you look so much like my Auntie Geraldine. Like. a much younger version. She's gorgeous, like, it's fine, it's it's a compliment. Um, (laughs) She's actually in fashion, um, Perucci clothing. She married an Italian, because when Australians uh, migrated, um, who who you'd meet in mass is that all the Irish (laughs) would see the Italians in mass, and so there's heaps of Irish, Italian, Australians. Um, uh, I'll tell you about Geraldine later, she's she's wonderful. Um, The passage, I'm not going to preach much today, if that's all right. I'm going to testify a little, um, confess some. And these are confessions. Um, These are confessions of an Aussie. These aren't heroic stories. These are stories of, uh, um, of a shameful history that we need to heal. And as I've walked um, the thick scars, which are the border, which cuts across this, this gorgeous land, and sought to find thin spaces as we listen to people's stories and people's pain. And and regardless of what we think of um, uh, Brexit, what we can all agree on is that what it brings to the surface is pain for some of us. That isn't abstract. Loss has names. We have memories of funerals. This isn't um, issues far off and uh, as as I will be tonight in the place of my dad's birth in Coleraine, um, to, to be back here and to listen to stories. I'm thinking of stories of borders at home and the work we have to do at home to actually heal our land. And um, as I walk, some of the things that I've been thinking of are some of the stuff that Dave, after the other night, asked me to to share, so I apologise for those who were at Borderland the other night, and they're like, you're gonna share those stories again. The odd thing is, these are stories that you might have picked up in that video. They're actually pretty traumatising for me. Um, I don't often share these stories because I find it difficult to get through them. So with that in mind, I'd like to ground um, the storytelling that I'm about to do in a particular text. Um, in Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, going to verse 46. But with your permission, instead of me read them, I lost a mate to cancer earlier in the year who was an amazing 
blues jazz musician. His name was Paul Joyer. And in 2002, uh, when I was first getting involved in uh, refugee rights issues at home, he wrote the most extraordinary worship song to come out of Australia. And we've sung some worship songs coming out of Australia that aren't nearly as popular because of how explicit he makes this text. I'm not a musician. Um, I am not gifted nor called to be a worship leader. Um, uh, this, if anything, will be an experiment in vulnerability for me. Uh, but I would actually like to sing you this worship song, which you'll see explicitly is based upon Matthew 25. Does that sound all right? Not to me, I'm, I'm petrified. Cat <laughs> like, is going to be like, you did what? Um, so I apologise up front. Maybe you close your eyes so you don't look at me. <laughs> Behold the Son of Man With all his angels Gathered round him Behold the host of nations Round his holy throne The King will reign with might and he will shake their souls from left to right. The king will choose them one by one and then will cry. When did we see you a broken man lying beside a cell door? When did we meet your eyes and not recognize the Savior's face in the humbled poor? I am a refugee. I am a captive child. A detainee, I pace from wall to wall with a broken heart. Help me. When do we see you, a broken man, lying beside a cell door? When did we meet your eyes and not recognize? The Savior's face in the humbled pole. I am the Holy One. I am the King of Kings, the conquering Son. And there will come a time when my kingdom comes to you. When do we see you, a broken man, lying beside a cell door? When did we meet your eyes and not recognize Jesus' face in the humbled poor? Lord, I ask that my sharing might be something that does justice 
to my friends who have been in detention for six and a half years, who committed no crime, who simply sought safety because of persecution. I ask that the words on my lips and the meditation of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, for truly you are our strength and our Redeemer. So Holy Spirit, do your will, do your will, Holy Spirit, that we might be drawn into the beauty of your coming kingdom and witness to the power of the name of Jesus. And all those who love God and want to know him more said, Amen. Back in uh, 2017, November, news that the Australian Detention Centre in Manus, which is an island to the north of Papua New Guinea, had been exposed for the hell house that it is, reached the public and the Australian government, including very public Christian leaders. I'm a Pentecostal minister at home. Uh, Australia has its first Pentecostal prime minister who is responsible for these policies. This isn't a partisan issue. Both the major left parties and the major right parties have been complicit in this cruelty to people who simply need safety. When these issues were exposed, they decided what they were going to do is again hide these men in new detention centres. And the men had the electricity turned off, all the staff leave, food cut off, medical supplies cut off, including mental health medication because the men had lived there for nearly five years when we were smuggled in there. They decided they weren't going to go. And some of you might ask, why would you not leave if they're cutting off water, if they're cutting off food? if they're cutting off medical supplies. And the simple answer is, this is the first time they had any power, any agency in their situation where they were out of sight and out of mind because Australians love for you to think of us as fun-natured, larrikin, happy-going, too much sunshine kind of people. And all of that is right, and yet there's a dark side to my nation that needs redeeming. Two things are equally true of Australia. 1901, with Federation, we were set up as a utopia of equality. And in the first week of Parliament in Australia, to protect that utopia of equality, white Australia policy was passed, so lesser races, including us, mix, wouldn't mess with the perfection of this utopia. White Australia policy was officially ended in the 60s when Aboriginal people with the oldest living cultures in the world, 60,000, 70,000, 80,000 years, were officially recognised as something other than flora and fauna. And yet Australia, in its multiculturalism, which is celebrated publicly, still fears what white fellas like me did. Arrive by boat, and take other people's land. And they're petrified by people who need safety who arrive by boat. So these men said, we're not leaving. And for 18 days, despite the fact they had no food, no medical supplies, no water, no power, the local Manusian Christians, who are incredible, both Protestant and Catholic, smuggled in food, a generator, diesel, um, we're talking magic noodles, we're talking tin tuna, uh, we're talking uh, drinking water, we're talking medical 
Blyers. Manus is one of the poorest islands on one of the poorest nations, Papua New Guinea, in the world. And the generosity of these Christians to keep a predominantly Muslim detainees alive was phenomenal. And in the midst of this, I get a call from my friend, Father Dave, who's the oldest professional boxer in Australia. He's an Anglican priest of an evangelical variety who runs a boxing uh, uh, centre in Sydney for kids who are doing it rough on the streets, for them to get a bit of discipline, a little bit of goal setting, a little bit of vision for their life. And he says, we're going to go. And I'm like, I'm in. Since 2004 was the first time I opened my home to a, a refugee, and I've lived with refugees since then. And so with a friend who did a documentary on our boat, on us both separately um, for the ABC, which is like the BBC at home, Olivia, who she got footage of uh, Abu Ghraib, who some of you might remember the horrors of Abu Ghraib, um, uh, which was a awful centre in Iraq. She's the journalist who got that footage out. She joined us and we were smuggled like a black ops team into the detention centre, just like the New York Times had been several days earlier. We weren't there as reporters, we were there as ministers. Now, uh, I'm from a tradition where we don't wear, you know, the smells and bells and I don't have the awesome outfits, which I'm so jealous of, because there's nothing better when getting arrested than having a collar. And I was like, I wish I had one of them. That'd have been awesome. Dave showed up and he's in full cassock and collar and everything. And we arrive about eight o'clock at night and these men, yes, there were persecuted Christians there, but some of them are persecuted because they're gay and lesbian. In a reality in many nations where simply being gay is a death sentence. Many of them were there because they were seeking to share the gospel and risk their lives doing so and now are seeking safety elsewhere. Some of them, uh, like my friend Baruz, who was nominated and won the Amnesty International Australian Human Rights Award and had uh, the, um, a best-selling biography that won the highest award in Australia for a bio biography last year, he is still in detention. He is Kurdish, he is a journalist, and his work for human rights is the reason why he's there. Them seeing Father Dave arrive in his full kit, men weeping said to us, God, Allah has not forgotten us. You being here, they didn't care that he was Christian. But men literally were like, we thought God had forgotten us and you being here, and all we did for seven hours, which was too long and got us into trouble, no spoilers ahead, um, is we recorded their stories. We were just wanting to get their stories out. Uh, some of you who um, watch the BBC closely uh, might have heard Olivia, um, who was the photojournalist, her interviewed earlier in the week. Um, uh, Angus, who uh, put the documentary together, it's just been um, selected for a BAFTA short film award, the actual footage. Uh, so Angus is over there at the moment and um, invited me over and I thought that'd work well because I was doing stuff here with 24-7 uh, for the incredible gathering we are a part of and then YWAM and I was like, that's great. I'll just um, jump over that small bit of water in between and uh, be in London and then I had a dream in the middle of the night where I felt very clearly God asking me to walk the border, so I'm walking the border instead of doing interviews with the BBC. But I haven't felt that feeling in such a strong way 
since the feeling that I needed to go to Manus. So I'm not sure what God's going to do with um, this border peace pilgrimage we're currently doing, but I had the same sense that this is going to be life-defining for me and already has been. We get the footage out and we're on the beach and behind us is the detention centre, which all the um, walls have actually been torn down just a few days before by the military as a way of intimidating the men who refused to leave. It's been 18 days now. They're surviving on uh, the generosity and charity of the local churches, uh, but things are quite desperate. And we're on the beach about to be smuggled out with all the seven hours of footage that we have. Father Dave, being a boxer, he's quick. He's already out on the boat. Uh, the boat is bobbing in the water under these like incredible stars that reflect over uh, the still water. We're hugging the men and saying goodbye. Um, incredibly moving. I could pause at any moment in this and just tell stories of these men and what they've been through and how significant and important their stories are. And as we're hugging goodbye, this massive light, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like being at the football and it's suddenly daylight, even though it's the middle of the night. It's one o'clock and it's, we're blinded. And there's about 10 of us on the beach and somebody grabs me and pulls me down and we're literally ducking. And then somebody says, run. And as we're running, realizing that this is the Navy and the, the Navy had been disarmed by Australia, which, and let that sink in, this is Australia disarming another sovereign nation of their weapons because we've bullied another nation, one of the poorest nations in the world, with our aid development and relief money that unless you take our refugees, you will not receive our aid. The Easter previous to us being there in a sick playing out of a passion play, Navy personnel got drunk and fired their weapons in the air to land in the detention centre, and that's why they had their weapons off them. So in our favour, we had that the Navy who were pursuing us didn't have weapons, but we were facing like imprisonment in one of the poorest nations in the world and international, you know, furor over what are Australians doing on sovereign land of another, and well, well, that's a very good question. Let's ask that question. What are Australians doing here, and how is it playing out? Anyway, we're running back through the jungle. We can't see, and the light would flash uh, through, and you'd suddenly realise where trees were, completely disorientating. In the adrenaline, I'd only half realise that my ankle has been slashed open on a bit of corrugated iron that the military had pulled down. I have no idea where I am or which way to go. I have all Olivia's camera stuff on my back, so there's about $12,000 worth of camera equipment on my back. And out of nowhere, this tall angel says, brother, take my hand. That was Adam, Adam who I talked about in that video, Adam who ran from what was happening in Darfur. Um, I have a gorgeous adopted son and it's clear that he's adopted because he's six foot five. So he doesn't look very Irish. He's tall, very tall, very dark and very handsome. And I'm short, fair and odd looking and that's the standard joke I use when I'm talking about Tyson. And Tyson is about the same age as Adam. And during the amount of time that Adam had been in detention. Tyson had graduated from high school. He had gone to university, had met somebody special, 
He'd saved up money while working a job for a skiing trip in Japan with his mates. He'd, he'd travelled a bit. He'd graduated from university. Adam had done none of those things. Adam woke up every day thinking, is this my last day? Or as we were saying in the video before, or is this my first day of another four years? See, even if you commit a crime and you go to jail, you know that it's either for life or you're up for parole after seven years or whatever. The psychological pressure it puts on you. I used to share a room in the early days of practicing hospitality to refugees because we had no money. And so Ahmad Shah and I shared a room together. And he would wake in the night screaming. And he would scream, WAG 18. I was like, what is WAG 18? And he would join us for morning prayer. And he wept in the silence of morning prayer one morning. And he turned to me afterwards. And he said to me, WAG 18. WAG 18. What the is WAG 18? So I'm sure I don't know. And he said, it's, it's what they would call me instead of my name. He was woken in the night and asked if he was WAG 18 for over four years. Imagine what that does to you psychologically. Your future frozen in a hell hole after the trauma of seeing family members killed by the Taliban or tortured because you're Rohingya, or pick a conflict around the world, and that's what these people's stories were. And Adam ran us into safety, and suddenly as Australians, Olivia and myself, because Father Dave was already on the boat, we found ourselves in a situation where we had nothing other than the kindness of these men. We were Australians taking refuge in Australian refugee detention centre. The military weren't allowed on it, so we got in there, and the first thing they said is like, let's wash you, because we're covered in mud. And so these wells that they've dug to preserve rainwater, because there's no water running water in the detention centres anymore, they then take their precious water and they wash our feet. Now for me, I've been pastoring in situations and leading churches where we've sought to put foot washing front and centre again for the church. For over a decade after baptising people, they come out of the water and in our church, people, elders who've been walking with Christ for a long time, gather around a new Christian and wash their feet and then hand them the towel and say these words, no longer with the sword, but with this towel we now conquer and new Christians, their first act of discipleship is washing the feet of the ones who have taught them to wash feet as our new way of being in the world. Here are Muslim men washing my feet, and I just lose it. I just start sobbing. It was the first of many occasions where Olivia, who's like a big sister to me, just said, pull it together. These men have suffered enough. They don't need to suffer through your tears. <laughs> And I did, and she was right. And as the washing my feet realized that my ankle is completely split open. And they're like, we need to hide you. And they take us to their makeshift little medical center. I mean, like as a pastor, it was like watching Acts 2 and Acts 4. These people from all different backgrounds, all different faiths, 
working together in such a way that no one was in need. It was almost like they appointed deacons. They literally had people who, because there were mental health medication was no longer coming in, that so many of the men suffered from severe anxiety and many other things, that they appointed certain people in the community to take them around and look at the birds each day to care for them. Incredible is that? They were redistributing the food so no one was in need. They had done that for 18 days. I mean, this, this is Kropotkin and other anarchist theorists' wet dream. This is like just an amazing example of people actually organising together to love one another. They take us to this little medical centre and they want to use their limited medical supplies that have been smuggled into the centre on me. Don't use it on me. I'm so humiliated. Don't use it on me. And Olivia, again, like my big sister, is like, we're in the tropics. This is going to be infected in the next hour. Use the medical supplies. And so my nation has cut off medical supplies. They came in need and were given nothing other than detention and horror. And yet those that we were so cruel to are now being so kind to me and they use their limited medical supplies on me. And then they find us a room and men gave up their room and we walk in the room and written on the wall in text is something along the lines of hatred won't do it, only love will. There is a worn copy of Nelson Mandela's The Long Walk to Freedom that is so frayed because it gets passed around like it was holy scriptures. The next day I'd find out that they do the same with the Martin Luther King books that they had in there. Aziz would tell me, who's now found safety in Sweden and has won an international human rights award, Aziz would tell me this four and a half years for me has been a PhD in how violence doesn't work. That is why we will win through nonviolence. I was like, man, I want to hear that in the church. How is it that these men in such desperate situations, instead of destroying each other, are banding together? And I don't know where you fit theologically or, or whatever, but I'm, I'm like, yes, there are persecuted Christians here, but here are people with no faith and all faiths who are coming together in such a way that looks so much like Jesus. And so much of our preaching out of these kind of texts, even though it says Jesus is found in the least of these, we still read it like, I'm going to go be Jesus to the least of these. Look at me bringing light to the least of these. I have Jesus. Let me bring it to you. And our Lord is so clear. That's not the way it works. This isn't about being super saints or heroes of faith. This is about realizing that transformation, salvation, is tied up in those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are sick, those who are imprisoned, those who are the refugee, the stranger, those who are without clothes. That's where you'll find Jesus, camouflaged as the lost, the last, the least. That's how Christianity works. We're like, I'm going to go be a white saviour. Jesus wasn't white, and look at the kind of saviour he was. None of that looks like Jesus. It's the demons who call Jesus son of David, and they're right, but they don't understand the definition he's going to bring in Calvary, in resurrection, that this isn't the kind of saviour that wields a sword, but suffering love he will conquer with. So we are hidden out 
for the day. And the refugees joke we were the first Australian detainees. And then we get a message that the only way that we're going to get out is that night we're going to be smuggled out under the night sky. But the Navy are looking for us, so we're going to have to swim over a kilometre and a half, and I know you do miles out this way, so somebody work it out and pass it around. I don't understand miles. Um, we're going to have to swim a kilometre and a half, so it's like 20 minutes to 40 minutes of swimming, depending on how well you swim, and there in the water be picked up. They're going to have two local deep-sea divers swim from 2Ks out so they're not discovered, swim in with a plastic container to put Olivia's camera in, and our clothes, and then we're going to, and they're like, and this is how we're getting out, and is, we're like, is there another way? And they're like, yes, you can get arrested and see how you go in the prison system here. And we're like, swimming it is. So it's about 10.30 at night, these guys come ashore, they bring this plastic container, the plastic container is wet inside. I can't tell you how much this starts to freak out Olivia. This is $12,000 worth of camera equipment. It doesn't even fit her bag, so we're having to like pull the camera apart and put it in, and um, we're then told to take off our clothes. Like, literally, we were hungry, and they fed us their limited Maggi noodles and tuna. We were needing clothes, and they gave us clothes instead of our sweaty, mud-drenched clothes. We were a stranger, and they welcomed us like we were Jesus. We were imprisoned with them and they would come and visit us while they're in prison. Can you see? This is how the passage works. And so we're shoving our stuff into the, the, the canister and these two guys are like, we're going to swim. And so we're standing there and we made the um, decision to say goodbyes up at the base before we had to walk through the jungle to the beach. And so we said our goodbyes before, and then we get down there, and so we're literally just like in our, our jocks, undies and bra, as I said the other night, to be clear, I wasn't wearing the bra, and, and then we're like, we're swimming for a K and a half out to sea to be picked up by a little wooden boat with the engine strapped to the back, and this was going to be our way out. And as we're swimming over, and if we had more time, and I'm aware of the time, and we've got to come around the table... Our Lord meets us in the strangest of places, in the strangest of people, including in this meal where he promises to be present. Olivia puts her foot down on the reef. Um, for those who aren't used to surfing, and it's pretty cold here, I don't blame you, um, you don't put your foot down on a reef, particularly in a tropical area. She gets a sharp spike through the back of her foot and um, uh, she's swearing and all the rest. And one of the locals says to her, do you want me to get it out the traditional way? And she says, whatever, just like whatever. She's talking about swimming back. We're already 20 minutes out to sea. He gets her to go lie on her back and then picks up her foot and puts it in his mouth. <laughs> Starts gnawing the, the spike out of her foot. She's not trying to, like, yell because um, literally we can see the Navy's, like, lights in the background. And then we get out there and they pull out a laser pen and this was going to be the way to signal to the boat that was going to start the engine and give us enough time to outrun the Navy, even though we're in this dinky little, like, two-stroke. Only 
even in English, the subtlety between water resistant and waterproof, you know, it's like, so English is your fourth language. They pull it out, laser pointer. Laser pointer doesn't work. Olivia and I both start calling on the name of Jesus in very different ways. But the thing is that <laughs> it's always a prayer, right? Whether you know it or not, it's, it's always a prayer. One of the guys goes, I got an idea, and he pulls out a lighter, a cigarette lighter. We've been in the water for 30 to 40 minutes, and he's like, it's okay, I have a backup plan. And he's like, and Olivia again is like, Jesus. And her prayers were answered, and the lighter lights, and, and he's waving it there, and Olivia's like, what, they're going to see this? And get us, and it was about 30 seconds and then out of nowhere, because it's so dark and the stars are so bright, it seemed like at the same distance that you are from me now, the, the little boat just appeared. And they dragged us in and pulled us out, and there's a whole story of then like um, waiting and trying to uh, get away and get safe and get into a vehicle, <laughs> which includes when we land, we're ducking down, and they're saying that, because it's early in the morning now, uh, but the sun is yet up, and they're, they're like, there are people cooking. <laughs> so the uh, local traditional people cooking on the beach, right? <laughs> and they say, when we give the signal, you just need to run. And so they go, run. And then, like, two white people in their underwear <laughs> just jump out of this little boat and just start, like, bolting it for the back of this white van. They must fit like... I would have loved to just had 30 seconds to be with them and understand how they responded to that little scene. And, and obviously we got away and we're still here, but this isn't a story of um, uh, Christian, as one Australian comedian at home, Will Anderson, whose quote that was, Dave, that you talked about before. He's like, this is like Jason born again. This is like a, I thought that was really funny. Um, this isn't a story about us. This is a story of millions of people for whom this is a reality. And your nation is much better than mine when it comes to this. And the irony is if we can dig into the pain and the shame that we want to hide, they're the very places that become resources for compassion and empathy and doing onto others as we would hope somebody would do onto us. We're about to invite you to the table where God has done unto us what we could not do for ourselves, where God comes camouflaged as bread and wine and the warm embrace of somebody who looks you in the eye and says, this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ. Don't miss where Christ is today. As Dave comes up, I want to invite you to the table. I want to invite you to encounter Jesus. Not just the Damascus Road experiences, and some of us have had that, and we hope for that, and we pray for that, and all of that is wonderful. I'm a happy, clappy, tongue-speaking, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving Christian. But if any of that doesn't express itself in finding Jesus camouflaged in the least of these, it's all clanging gongs and tinkling cymbals. This table is where the grace to recognize Jesus elsewhere 
recognizes us as children of God. And then from this place, from the dignity and forgiveness and freedom that we experience in this bread and this grape juice, from here we go out to see Jesus everywhere. Any prayers for revival that don't lead to seeing Jesus in everyone, including the stranger and our enemies, aren't prayers for the kingdom. So church, this is the table. Not of us, the church, but of the Lord. It's prepared for everyone, everyone, everyone who wants Jesus, who wants grace, who knows their need for healing. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often or you who come for the first time, you who have tried to follow Jesus, you who have failed in following Jesus, you who have just decided to follow Jesus, come, leave judgment behind receive mercy, leave indifference behind, recognize in the eyes of others God's family, leave now if necessary, go be a forgiver, then run back because it's God's desire that you would encounter Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit here. So church, come and recognize Jesus.